All right, good morning, Christ the King. Happy to be up here once again, um, bringing God's, words to you, God's word to you this morning. Um, your, the text for today is going to be found in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, uh, on to chapter 2, verse 6. If you don't have your Bible, it is printed in your bulletin. All right, now while you're thumbing through that, I'm going to kind of just give a brief recap of, um, of where I am with John. Um, as I mentioned last time, I'm going to be going through the book of 1 John uh, because uh, I'm going to be asked to preach regularly, and I didn't want to just uh, jump from passage to passage throughout the scriptures. I want to kind of just focus in and hone in on one particular book of the Bible. And I chose the, the uh, first letter of John. Now, in uh, <clears throat> my introductory message that I gave a couple months back, I mentioned that the, um, the heresy that was going on at the time was the heresy of Gnosticism, and how Gnosticism had uh, started to spread throughout the church and caused some division and confusion uh, amongst God's people. Um, part, of the, part of the things that they were teaching, Gnosticism was teaching, uh, was that was the deity of Christ. They did not believe that Jesus had come, or was, or was that full, he was fully God, and he had not, co- not come incarnate. And so that was causing a lot of confusion, and um, as a result, John uh, uses those first, fir- first four verses in the uh, letter to stress the fact that Jesus was indeed deity. He was the second person of the Trinity, and... Um, and that he did come incarnate, and that he died on the cross for the sins of his people. All right, so today we're going to cover the next uh, couple of verses, and I will read that to you. Uh, Word of God, this is starting with 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, Ought to, ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. 
The word of the Lord. All right, very good. So what I want you to do for just a moment is imagine that you are a brand new Christian. You're new to the faith, and you live in a town where there's only one place of worship. And so you have no other choice but to go to this location to worship God. Now, in this congregation, there is a mixed bag of Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, uh, maybe even some Roman Catholics sprinkled in there. Right? But you don't know that. You're just there to worship God. You're a brand new convert. And as time passes and you start to fellowship with other people in the congregation, um, you notice that some of the beliefs that these other people hold are not exactly what you were initially taught when you came to Christ. And so you could imagine the confusion that, some, that you would have and the assurance that you would have is, am I really worshiping the true God, the true living God? Am I really a follower of Jesus? Well, this is exactly uh, what was happening here with the audience that John is writing to. They were brand new converts. Um, Christianity was, was brand new. And they didn't have uh, a church in every corner the way we do now. Uh, the, the church was heavily persecuted at the time, so finding a place to worship was, was hard. And so when you eventually found a group of people to come worship with, um, come to find out that they did not believe exactly what you were taught initially as a Christian. So what John is going to do for the remaining of his letter is he's going to assure his audience that they are indeed in union with Christ, and by doing so, the way he's going to do this is by giving them three tests that they can self-diagnose themselves to know whether or not they are indeed a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the three tests that John will give his audience, the first test is the test of obedience. All right? So that's the, the test that we're going to be look at, looking at today. The second test that he will be giving them is the test of love, particularly love for the church. And then the third test uh, is the Christology test, right, to make sure that what they believe about Jesus Christ is indeed uh, what they should be believing. So within, within these uh, tests, he's going to use sharp contrasts to make distinctions of whether or not they're true children of God. So he'll use uh, language like, light and darkness, truth and lie, um, children of the devil, children of God. Okay, so he's going to be using the, the, these uh, contrasts for his people to know exactly where they are. Before he begins uh, giving these tests, though, um, he's going to give a brief summary of what the gospel is. In verses 5 through 10, uh, he gives a brief summary of the gospel, and he begins by saying, uh, okay, he says in verse 5, this is the message that we declare to you. Now, throughout my, my preparation for this message, I, I went back and forth about this word declare, and some translations it says proclaim, because I was going to take some time to, I, I didn't want to go into rabbit trail uh, with this word. I decided that, you know what, if you guys want to stay for q and A, I'll I'll break it down a little bit more in Q&A. Um, but that word declare is very significant 
and um, well, well, we'll save it for Q&A. So what is the message that John heard from Jesus that he is now wanting to, um, his hearers to know? And the message is that God is light. That is the gospel. God is light, and there is no darkness in him. Now, later on in the, um, in the epistle, I believe it's in chapter 4, God, uh, John will also say that God is love. Right? Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, um, I'm sure that God is love is something that you hear regularly. It's probably something that you, that you say regularly. God is love. God is love. And he is. God is love. But how often do you hear people say God is light? Not too often. You don't often hear that. Why do you think that is? Well, we'll let uh, Jesus himself answer that for us. For us. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Jesus, uh, in his conversation with Nicodemus, tells him, He who believes in him, uh, meaning Jesus, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been, having been wrought by God or in God. So to say that God is light is metaphorically saying that he is absolute moral perfection. He is pure. He is holy. And we're not. So as a result, we tend to shy away from saying God is light because it's more comfortable for us to think of him as love. And so we say God is love, God is love, and amen, God is love. But God is also light. Now, in the, in the scriptures, uh, you'll see many of God's attributes on display. Uh, you'll see his mercy on display. You'll see his grace. You'll see his wrath, justice. Uh, but in R.C., Dr. R.C. Sproul's series, Holiness of God, he says that of all these attributes, there's only one, only one attribute where God is mentioned as thrice, and that's thrice holy. Holy, holy, Holy. Never will you see a scripture saying that God is love, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. It's holy, holy, holy. And that is very significant because that's how we ought to see God. God is holy and we're not. Now, Christianity is unique in many ways compared to other religions. And one of those ways that Christianity is unique is that we take sin seriously, whereas other religions will see sin as having maybe personal faults or flaws or maybe some imperfections, um, Orthodox Christianity calls sin for what it is. It is the breaking of God's law. Uh, the Shorter Catechism defines sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Uh, Dr. Sproul call, calls it cosmic treason against a holy God. So some of the Gnostics in John's day they were going around saying that there is no such thing as sin, only ignorance. 
some of some other Gnostics, because there is different Gnostics that believe different things. Other Gnostics, uh, they believed that they were free from sin by gaining superior knowledge. Now, in a subtle way, whether we want to admit it or not, we kind of do the same thing. When it comes to sin, we don't name sin for what it is. We kind of we tend to downplay it or just not admit to it at all. Um, we will call them errors, mistakes. You know, I, I made a lot of mistakes in my life. The reality is I've sinned a lot, but we won't say that. We've just, we'll call them mistakes, right? Um, when two people decide to have sexual relations and come together and live in a household without being married, uh, the Bible calls that fornication. What do we call it? Cohabitation, right? When a spouse decides that they're going to commit adultery, instead of calling it for what it is, we call it affair, having an affair, or cheating, right? So we, we use these words to downplay what sin really is. Um, let's see here. So I want to ask you a question. When was the last time that you really, really got honest about your sin with God? I'm not talking about a general, yes, God, I'm a sinner, forgive me, because any normal human being in their right mind will accept that they're a sinner. But to come truly before God in the sense of remorse, and I'm talking about real, real confession of your sin, which is what John is talking about here, where he says, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and, and just to forgive you. I mean, when was the last time you did a real Old Testament sackcloth and ashes type of, re, of repentance? We don't. Uh, we just come before God in a casual way and we acknowledge, yes, God, I am a sinner. Uh, but that's about as far as we go with it. Now, there is a certain relief, uh, a certain joy that comes from fully confessing your joy to God. Um, do you guys remember um, David? Uh, King David and his debacle with Bathsheba. You notice what I did there? I called it a debacle instead of adultery. That's what we, that's what we tend to do with, with sin. We, we exchange what the Word of God says for something that's a little more lightweight. Anyways, um, so David, he did his thing with Bathsheba, committed adultery, and then he went out and committed murder as well. And initially, he doesn't repent of his sin. God has to send the prophet Nathan to kind of bring him to a place of confession. Now, listen to David uh, as he basks in the joy of confession and forgiveness. This comes from Psalm 32. He says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My, my vitality was drained 
away as with the fever heat of summer. But then I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So David is telling us while he was in that state of, I don't know what it was exactly, but he was not in confession of his sin. He felt like his body was wasting away. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon him, and that's how we feel sometimes, that we go a prolonged time without really confessing our sins. It really starts to, to fester in our souls, in our spirit, until God brings us to that point where we just come clean, and we get on our knees, and we confess our sin and say, Lord, forgive me, I am an adulterer. I am a liar. I am a fornicator. Whatever your sin is, come clean before God. God knows. Well, you're not hiding anything from God. He knows the sins that we commit. So that is truly amazing. Coming, coming to God in full confession, knowing that he's going to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if you've been truly born again, um, this is the same message that you would have heard. God is light. God is holy. We're not. We are in need of confession of our sin. All right. Now, I was listening to a podcast earlier this week with uh, Stephen Lawson. Stephen Lawson is a great uh, contemporary preacher. And they, he was asked, which doctrine does he believe is lacking in, men, in churches today? And he believes that the doctrine that's most lacking is the doctrine of regeneration, doctrine of the new birth. Um, he says that it is rare when he hears a preaching on that subject. And uh, being someone who I, I listen to a lot of sermons throughout the week from preachers past and present, and I got to agree, it's, it's rare when I do hear a preaching or a sermon on the new birth. Uh, Dr. Lawson says that um, a lot of, me a lot of the uh, messages that he hears deal with justifi justification by faith alone. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that because we are justified by uh, faith alone. Um, however, that preaching that a lot uh, is easier for us to, uh, to become um, self-deceived because it's easy in our minds to to be like, okay, well, yes, I believe in God or in Jesus alone. That's, that's a no-brainer. But, but in the order of salutis, the order of salvation, the new birth, regeneration comes before justification. You're not justified until first you're regenerated. So you have to be regenerated first, and regeneration brings a whole, it's a whole other ballgame when you start to really contemplate, well, am I born again? Uh, some of us, don't know if we were, we don't know the exact time, date, some of us do, some of us probably have it marked down in our Bible right now, we have the date, the time, what we were doing, what we were wearing, um, and, and others don't, and it's okay. Um, when it comes to the, uh, to being born again, uh, we all know the uh, conversation that Jesus had with uh, Nicodemus, and he tells Nicodemus about the new birth, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is 
um, with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Now, when it comes to being born again, there's two things that are always going to be true. Number one is the message. The message of the gospel will always be the same. It's been the same for 2,000 years. It will never change. The second thing that's always going to be true about being born again is that it is a sole work of the Holy Spirit. We do not cooperate with the Holy Spirit in being born again. When you were physically born, you had no say in your physical birth, and so it is with your spiritual birth. God decides when and where we, he, he is going to make us alive again in Christ. So um, what I want to do is kind of take the next few moments, few minutes to dig in a little bit deeper about what it is to be born again, because I know um, me, myself, there is a point in my pilgrimage where I couldn't tell was I born or not, was I born again or not, and um, so I want to go, I want to mention or go over the, the new birth for just a moment. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells the Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is telling us here is that by nature we were children of wrath. We don't come into this world as innocent little babies. No. Uh, we, God's wrath is in us from our mother's womb. And it is not until God brings us alive by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are going to be born again. Okay, now, being born again, like I mentioned, the, mes the message is always going to be the same. And it's always going to be done by the Holy Spirit. However, the context by that which comes about is going to vary from person to person. We're not all going to have that same born-again experience. Um, some of you might have been born again under Chuck's great preaching. Uh, some of you might have been born again while reading a tract that some stranger handed out to you out in the streets. Uh, some of you might have been born by simply reading the scriptures for yourself. You, did, you were curious about what the Bible had to say. You, you opened it to wherever, and God illuminated your heart, your mind, your eyes, and, and you could see. So we all have different experience. I remember for myself, um, I was an 11-year-old lad, and there is a Christian crusade going on um, at Isleta High School, and there is uh, different uh, churches, Hispanic churches from throughout the city that were gathering together for this one-week crusade. And um, I remember the summer of 1990, and uh, my mother and my aunt, who's sitting here today, they decided that they would go check it out. And um, they brought me along, and my cousin, I remember my cousin came along. And that whole week, me and my cousin, we were 11-year-old boys. We were just walking around the stadium, you know, doing what 11-year-old boys do. Uh, but I remember that last night, there is a man by the name of Gigi Avila 
um, who he was bringing it that night. And for whatever reason, I stopped what I was doing, and I was hearing this man preach. And he gave me the scare of my life. I mean, <laughs> this man was saying, don't, go, don't leave the stadium tonight, get in a car accident, and go to hell. I mean, he was, <laughs> he was really bringing it. And, um, but I remember having a, a conviction come over me where I needed to ask Jesus for forgiveness. I needed to ask God for forgiveness. And after that auspicious night, I remember something was different about me. I couldn't really put a finger on what exactly what it was, but I remember uh, I went home and I had cassette tapes. Um, heavy metal cassette tapes. I was into heavy metal music at the time. So these uh, Slayer and Metallica and uh, Megadeth things, uh, you know, I was like, this is the devil's music. I gotta, I gotta do away with it. Uh, which is ironic because just last week I was at a Metallica concert. <laughs> um, anyways, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to live or walk as best as I can um, as an 11-year-old boy with no real guidance. There is no youth group at, at uh, this church that my mom has started attending, and my, my mother wasn't even born again at the time, so it was just kind of me on my own. I remember my asking my mom, can you buy me a Bible, please? And she went to Walmart and bought me this clunker of a Bible, the King James. And I mean, to, to an 11-year-old boy, a King James Bible is like foreign language. You're like, what is, what is this? Um, but I remember finding my way around it. I found the Ten Commandments. I found uh, the Lord's Prayer. And every day I would just go over that and just kind of read it. Read it and just trying to do my best as I, that I could without no real guidance. And um, as time went by and I got into high school, I got mixed up with the wrong crowd. And I had the prodigal, so prodigal son type story where I kind of went out, went out and sold my wild oats for, for a few years. And um, I remember during those years that I was out doing <laughs> things, sinning. <laughs> um, in the back of my mind, I always had this notion, this thought that one day I'm, I'm going to get back. One day I'm going to get back to the fold. If God allows me to live, at some point I will come back. And sure enough, by God's grace, uh, early 2005, uh, from one day to another, I told my wife at the time, it's time to go to church. It's time to stop stop the, the nonsense, stop the sinning, and, and go to church. And she was like, okay. So she just kind of went along with it, and I, got, I went back to the church where I had started as an 11-year-old boy. And, and that's, that was my story. You know, and 15 years later, here I am, preaching the word of God to you. So why am I saying all this? The reason I'm saying this all this is because at some point in our lives, if we claim to be Christians, follower of Christ, we have to be sure that we're born again. We have to be sure that we're born again. There's a certain point in your life where that heart of stone that you were born with is replaced with a heart of flesh. Now again, it's going to be different for everyone, and not everyone's going to be able to pinpoint the date. And if you can't do that, I would suggest that you do a sanctification test, because the Bible says that you will be sanctified in this life from the point of your conversion until Christ comes again. So just take a look back, maybe a year, two years, three years, 
have you been increasing in sanctification? And use that as, as a test. Am I really in the faith? Because if you're not, if you're stagnant or maybe, I don't know, you, you're just indifferent to your sin, then you really need to question whether you're born again or not. Okay, so enough with the born again stuff. Now we're ready for the tests. So, in verse, chapter 2, verse 3 through 6, John says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected, and by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Um, so a new life, a new life will, it will show itself in obeying God. I'll say that one more time. A new life will show itself in obeying God. Now please please do not misunderstand what John is saying here. He is not saying that if you keep the commandments, you'll be saved. We don't believe in a works righteousness type of salvation. Again, it's by faith alone. What he is saying, though, is he's trying to assure his audience that are truly believers of their salvation, and he's saying this is how you're going to know if you're truly abiding in him, if you're keeping the commandments. Now, in... The last 15 years since I've been back in the fold, I've had lots and lots of conversations with Christians from all over the city because I've been to <laughs> a lot of churches. <laughs> and, um, I mean, it, it is amazing. Uh, uh, not amazing. Uh, um, it's kind of sad, actually. When the topic of the Ten Commandments comes up, it's rare when I find a Christian that can name the Ten Commandments. And that, that's sad. How are you going to obey something that you don't know? You know, and, and it, it's truly, truly a, a sad situation when you claim to be a Christian and you just, you don't know what it is that you're doing, really. But here, John is saying, if you keep the commandments, then you can be assured that you are uh, in Christ. Now, Notice the verbs in this, in this passage. The verbs that John is using are all present tense. He's not saying that those who at one point or at some time in, in the back, in, you know, in, in the uh, past, kept the commandments. He's talking about people that are keeping the commandments now. Uh, I cringe. I cringe when I hear someone say, I'm a Christian. I'm just not a practicing Christian. That, the Bible knows nothing of that language Either you're a Christian or you're not, and there is no off and on switch that we use to say that, well, I'm just not practicing, I don't feel like practicing. There's no off-season in Christianity. You're either, you're either a Christian and you're practicing what you believe or you're not, right? Now, <clears throat> someone may argue, well, if that's the case, then no one truly knows God because who can... Who can keep the commandments perfectly? Now, keeping the commands perfectly is not what John is saying in this passage. Uh, listen to what John Calvin says concerning this passage. 
John Calvin in the commentary says, John does not mean that those who wholly satisfy the law are keeping his commandments, for no one in this world would be, would be found, but those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in obedience to the will of God. So what John is saying, the Apostle John, he's saying if you're striving, if you make it your life's goal, your life to, to obey God, then you can be assured you're on the right path, you are in union with Christ. Again, no one's going to keep the commandments perfectly. That's why in the preceding verses, um, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for, not for ours only, but also for those who are of the whole world. So John here is saying, I'm writing to you so you may not sin, but I know you're going to, but take heart. We have Jesus Christ, the advocate, who's interceding for us, right? And here John uses a very, I, I love the word propitiation. It's not used very often in the scriptures, maybe three, four times. Um, basically what that means is that Jesus satisfied God's wrath on our behalf and he turned the, his God's wrath away from us. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't want to go too much into the word or what it means at the whole world. If there's any Arminians here, if you want to do a little Q&A after, we could do that. Um, but, yeah, th this is a wonderful passage assuring us, saying that we're going to sin. We're not perfect when you, when you come to Christ. But is it your goal to obey God do you love God? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. So if you say you love Jesus, then you keep the commandments. So listening to, to someone, myself in particular, but any other, anyone else that you might hear telling you to obey God's commandments, how does that really make you feel inside? Does that convict you? Do you kind of just lay it to your side and say, yeah, yeah, or how, how do you feel when someone tells you you must obey? Because a lot of times we want Jesus as Savior, but we don't want him as Lord. Jesus said, um, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say, right? Now, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to Christ, when it comes to God, there's really no indifference. There's either a hostility, or there is a love. And Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So he, he's describing a person who is obviously a non-Christian, and they're feelings toward God. They're hostile feelings. And it's very rare when you'll, when you'll actually hear someone admit that. And if you're a full-blown atheist or whatever, but even then, it's rare when you hear someone say, I'm hostile toward God. But that's exactly how Paul describes an unbeliever's feelings toward God, not only God, but the law of God. It says that you can't even, they can't even keep the commandments even if they wanted to. 
However, how does it sound when you hear someone say that they love God and his commandments? If you're going to put me on a deserted island for a year, and uh, you told me I could only take one book along, what book do you think I would take? The Bible. Come on. The Bible. But if you narrowed me down to maybe just take one chapter of the Bible with you, what chapter do you think I would take? Romans 8? No. <laughs> now, my favorite chapter in the whole scripture is, um, is Psalm chapter 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible by far, 176 verses. But the whole chapter is about loving God and delighting in his commandments. Listen to the psalmist. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed. When I look upon all your commandments, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your love I have treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all your ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your te testimonies, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. And on and on he goes for 176 verses about how much he loves God, how much he delights in his commandments. That's what it sounds like when someone is truly regenerate, when someone is truly born of God, who wants nothing more than to obey his Lord, to obey his God. Now, throughout Scripture, we are exhorted in different parts to test ourselves. Test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 that they should test themselves to see if they are truly in the faith, and we should do the same as well. Um, we're not guaranteed another day on this earth and the last thing you want or the only thing you want to know when you leave this place is am I born again 
Now, if you're like me, you like bottom, bottom line type, type things. I, you know, people talk, 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 and I just want to tell them, what's the bottom line? Tell me the bottom line. And if I could take one, one verse from Scripture, which pretty much summarizes the bottom line. If you read the whole Scripture, what's the bottom line? I could easily put this at the end of Revelation. And this actually comes from Ecclesiastes. It's the last verse in Ecclesiastes. And Solomon says, The end of the matter, after it's all been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or bad. And that is the bottom line. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you for all that you bless us with each and every day. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move upon us today, that we would be born again and know it, Father, know that we are truly in union with Christ and that we are on our way to heaven. Father, thank you again for this day. We ask and, play, ask and pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.